This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. I also want to be careful that when we talk about social capital, it's not always social, right? It's not just how do you build connections through after work activities, those kind of things. It doesn't have to be that at all. In fact, I would argue that's actually quite ineffective. That's McKinsey's senior partner, John Parsons. He's talking about something that is sorely lacking in organizations today, social capital or the ties that bind colleagues together. He joins me and McKinsey partner Brooke Weddle to discuss. After, get to know Angela and Sebastian Sinistera Woods. They're associate partners and a married couple who share their insider view of McKinsey and how whiteboards aren't just for conference rooms. Brooke, John, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, Roberta. Great to be here. Great to be here. So we're here today to talk about social capital, a topic that has always seemed to be this wonky term for what a lot of people call workplace connection or connectivity. Brooke, am I oversimplifying? What is social capital? How would we define it? Social capital simply defined is the presence of networks, relationships, connections uh, within any organization or or more broadly community or culture. Uh, It's been studied for multiple years, decades. Um, Some of the more recent work by Robert Putnam have emphasized the impact of social capital as it relates to ties in a community. And then, of course, our research looks at social capital in the context of organizations and how that social capital has evolved over the course of the pandemic. Our research specifically looked at social capital in terms of three specific elements. So access to social capital, uh, the ability to, to, to build those relationships and connections, motivation, to what extent an employee is motivated to, to build uh, social capital as part of one's network, and then finally, ability to build social capital, recognizing that uh, you may have access and you may have motivation, but at the end of the day, um, there's actually skill involved um, in terms of building and maintaining social capital. John, why do companies need social capital? Why is it so important? If you think about an organization, right, organizations are made up, it's either individuals, it's the teams that people work within, uh, it's the leaders that are leading those teams, and there's different benefits for each of them. And so getting social capital right actually has has benefits for each of those groups. Um, For an individual, you may think about the connections that you're making that either facilitate greater creativity, greater learning, There's lots of research that shows if you have greater engagement, you're more likely to stay. It can also help with career mobility. If you're leading the teams or you're part of a team, you know, social capital is sort of a a building block that leads ultimately to that that connection and that that innovation and that the sharing of ideas. Brooke, is there a downside to social capital? I'd imagine if you don't manage it well or, or if you don't manage it at all, there can be negative consequences for individuals or organizations. Is that true? Yeah, it it happens to be a really nuanced uh, concept, Roberta, which I think is exactly what you're getting at. So when you think about 
uh, relationships that form some of the, the the bonds around social capital, sometimes those relationships are uh, homogenous, meaning they can lead to silos in an organization or to use a very informal term, cliques. And we've seen that in some cases, groups that are of privilege in an organization can create relationships and connections that might be exclusive and not as democratic in terms of uh, allowing others to access them. And this this might be an unintended consequence of the fact that we like to hang out with people who are like us, right? But if we're talking about trying to get some of the full benefits of social capital in an organization, we need to be as attuned to some of those affinity um, or strong ties that connect people just as much as we need to be attuned to some of those weak ties um, that connect people that can actually lead to some of the uh, spontaneous collisions that allow us to interact with folks that we might not necessarily have interacted with and, and therefore, you know, in some cases, a new idea is formed. It's really about your ability, uh, the ability of an organization to manage social capital with a lens towards inclusion, right? I, I think the dark side comes if social capital becomes limited to certain groups or almost becomes exclusionary or isn't something that everybody can access equally. So you do have to be very thoughtful about, about how you include people. I'd really like to talk about the report that Brooke referenced um, and the research that we've done that shows that many companies today are actually running low on uh, social capital and connections. What's creating this deficit, and and what uh, what were the other findings that you that you saw through this research? There was a lot of conversation and dialogues with with our own clients around. Gosh, it feels like we're not as close to each other anymore, or seems like. Uh, trust has gone down because we're not hanging out in the hallways pre and post meetings. So we conducted a large scale uh, survey of U.S.-based companies and found that indeed when you looked at uh, the results, uh, access to social capital had gone way down. Uh, Specifically, fewer than 15% of employees reported that their network had grown. Uh, About a fifth of employees felt that they were more connected to people in their network. That's a very low number, to state the obvious. And even when you looked at people's external connections, similarly, less than 20% felt that those had grown. I think the really interesting thing, though, and troubling thing, uh, honestly, was some of the demographic differences. So just staying with access for a second, we found that when you looked at the differences between men and women, women were far less likely to have seen their network, internal or external, grow uh, during the pandemic. And similarly, when you looked at different levels in the company, we saw big differences in terms of what senior leaders reported as the growth of their network versus the front line, um, with single digit numbers being reported by the front line in terms of the growth of their networks relative to senior leaders that in some cases reported about half of them had seen and, and experienced a, a greater feeling of connection. So let's explore how individuals and companies can build back their stores of social capital and Brooke, I want to I want to just sort of have this discussion using those three lenses that you uh, that you had mentioned around motivation, access, ability. How can companies motivate employees to take the time to connect with others and build or rebuild their their networks? I think that 
the data that we saw represent a call to action. So I think in some ways we need to tell a story around social capital that allows employees to understand some of the benefits related to social capital. Some of that might be intuitive, right? Um, well, of course, I, I want to develop relationships. Um, but I think a deeper understanding of social capital would also include some of these weaker ties that we were talking about. I remember that when I, as, as a more junior employee, started off at McKinsey, I had a hard time wrapping my head around this idea that I needed to invest as much in some of the social interactions as much as just getting the model right and performing well. And I think um, as we see young people you know, weigh in about their perceptions around hybrid work, understanding some of the trade-offs related to how to build social capital. And to be clear, I think social capital can be built in a virtual context as well as an in-person context. I think the other way in which uh, organizations can help to motivate employees is actually to build it in formally to um, the performance management system. So when you think about how to incent people to develop uh, deeper relationships, you know, I, I think of sponsorship, meaning a relationship that is built on the, this idea that I am going to invest in more junior colleagues, typically, and I'm going to create opportunities for them. Um, that incenting leaders to think that way and to build connections accordingly, I think, is also you know a helpful lever in terms of increasing uh, motivation. The other thing I'd say is we also need good role modeling here. You know, imagine a leader resetting that and saying, you know, we're going to spend as much time checking in with each other at the start of the meeting as we are running through kind of the the tactics of how we're going to get work done. Obviously, there needs to be a balance, but I think leaders can play a big role in terms of role modeling what it looks like to place importance on the concept of social capital. John, any other levers that companies can use to to boost motivation? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think about it more on the individual level. I was talking with a group of executives um, just last week, actually, and the discussion was about how you build your network and how you build your network in the external environment. Um, and, and again, coming out of the last two, two and a half years, um, there was a broad acknowledgement that we had, had have been quite internally focused. And now it's about just being deliberate about it, making sure that you're taking time you know, picking up the phone and, and scheduling meetings and going and getting to meet people and actually being thoughtful about what the network is and, and recognizing the benefit of doing this, that it is actually an important thing to do. And therefore you should, you know, it is okay. Um, and if not expected that you spend some of your time doing that. I want to turn to the access dimension, right? So how can companies ensure that employees have access to networking opportunities or how, how do they gain more access to social capital? On the access point, I think um, it's really important to start with some kind of baseline, meaning an analytical baseline of what social capital looks like in the organization. One analysis that we frequently see being helpful is one where you identify key influencers in the organization. Influential not because of hierarchy, uh, but influential because people go to these people uh, in the organization for advice. Uh, because they trust them, because they know that this person will understand and have information about what's happening. And there are analytical ways 
of identifying these people. And you can take that input and actually create a social network map, right, of the organization. And you can figure out, you know, where are the bridge builders? So the people that are connecting otherwise disconnected groups, where are the super influencers? So the people uh, in the organization who are connected to other influential employees in the organization, uh, and so on. So I think bringing some kind of rigorous analytical baseline is a is a really critical first starting point to having any conversation around access to social capital in the organization. So John, can you provide an example of a company that that actually was successful at providing access to employees and and where social capital then was allowed to flow freely? It's a colleague who shared the story with me which was, you know, we were working with a client on a performance transformation or ops transformation trying to improve production, get cost out. And it wasn't going very well, right? People were not buying in, things weren't moving. And by chance, they added somebody to the team, to the the central project management office uh, as a finance analyst, just to record the numbers and and help with reporting. Um, But this individual sat quietly at the end of the table all day, you know, recorded the numbers, was part of the team, engaged in conversations, but didn't really say too much. But all of a sudden, it turned out that like people started showing up and asking questions about the transformation. Uh, leaders in the organization started engaging. People wanted to know what it was all about and actually started participating. And before you knew it, like it was taking off and they were starting to see the performance improvement. What we found out afterwards was this individual who had been uh, selected to the team was one of these super connectors that Brooke's talking about. He was the uh, chairman of the, or the president of the social club. He was the captain of the softball team. He used to hold a poker game at his house every Saturday night. Um, And so he had all of these contacts and connections within the company. And when he was having those events, he would be talking about what he learned all day and what was going on and that it was actually not a bad thing and that they were really trying to help the company. And so it just gave, it, it added credence. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the fact that this individual had that uh, social capital and had that uh, credibility with with all of his colleagues. It's a great story. Finally, I wanted to get to the ability dimension, um, and I'm curious about what sort of structures or resources companies can use to boost people's ability to to build social capital in the workplace. First, I think it's interesting that the research showed that the numbers in terms of ability were higher relative to access and motivation. So employees at least felt a greater degree of confidence um, with you know 50% reporting that they have the time and they know how to build out their network. So that was kind of an interesting finding that it might just be in general more of a um, access and motivation question. Now, that being said, these are perceptions of ability. And I think one thing that I've seen in working with organizations is helping to invest in employees' understanding of the different kinds of social capital. So similar to what we were talking about before, there are um, strong ties, um, and, and those can even be friendship ties, and there are weak ties in an organization. And you get very quickly understand um, you know, gosh, my network is 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 a little bit biased to having these really strong connections, which is terrific. But how can I 
create more of these weak ties to, to bridge to different parts of the organization, which might open up different opportunities. And so I think, you know, raising an employee's awareness around these different ties and the specific functionality of those ties can be a real game changer, especially for, you know, people who are, are trying to, you know, advance in their career and, and understand the landscape of opportunity and development. John, are there any other points around um, ability that you would like to add here? I also want to be careful that when we talk about social capital, it's not always social, right? It's not just, it's not the idea of it's a, how do you build connections through um, after work activities, those kind of things. It doesn't have to be that at all. In fact, I would argue that's actually quite ineffective. I think um, it's more the, if you think about it in a work context, you really build these social connections when you when you help somebody, right? When you go out of your way to be a sponsor, to create an opportunity to introduce them to somebody, just show that you actually take a genuine interest and care in, in the individual and they will, you know, they will reciprocate or they will pass it on to somebody else. And all of those small actions end up creating a, a social bond and social capital within the organization. Are there ways that companies can make physical changes or otherwise sort of make it easier for for folks to, to, to build social capital or to make these connections? So that's, that's a great question. We recognize that the physical space that we had before the pandemic actually doesn't make sense for us today. Um, and part of that is because now people are spending a lot more time either working hybrid, working on Zoom. So open concept seating just doesn't make sense. Um, so we're literally redesigning uh, and, and renovating the office to create both deliberately more closed door spaces. So more, you know, single meeting rooms, single offices, small meeting rooms where people can get together while maintaining the larger open areas that are designed and, and purpose for having lunch together and having a coffee and sitting down and talking. But you have to do both. And if we don't make the physical changes for the ability for people to work, they're not going to come to the office at all. Um, and so you lose the second benefit of those social social connections. Brooke, anything to add there? The thing that I've seen other leaders think through is what are my own biases around work and working in the office versus working at home? And how can I actually modulate those to be a little bit more open-minded around what actually is possible? I think um, I personally have, you know, I have a bias, I would say, to being in the office and, and being around people. I'm a very extroverted person. But I think I've learned that there are ways to connect virtually that I might not honestly have been exposed to had it not been for this experience that we had during the pandemic. And so I think instead of, you know, kind of reverting back to a world in which we are more dominated by this in-person work, I think we should learn from some of those experiences and readjust our own notions so that we can create, you know, effective models that might actually be a little bit more diverse and inclusive of different preferences. With or without the pandemic, what are some best practices for maintaining relationships over time? I think a little bit like, you know, one's physical health, it takes uh, some focused attention. It requires taking stock. And the, the thing that I think we saw about social capital in the research was that it can be fragile. So if neglected, 
it can actually atrophy quite quickly with those those numbers uh, going down so significantly in terms of uh, the the network that people reported uh, and the network growth during the pandemic. Just very very low numbers, especially I would say for for groups that are in some ways already at a disadvantage. Women have left the workforce in disproportionately high numbers, and they're the ones that we're seeing the social capital actually having been reduced the most relative to to men. So it's a bit concerning. And I think the best thing to do is is focus time and attention on it and ensure that just as John said at the start, the approach is inclusive so that you you build and you maximize the positive impacts of social capital, of which there are many. I think the the one trap to to avoid falling into is that um you know, yes, you have to be conscious of it. Yes, you have to keep working at it. It can atrophy quite quickly. At the same time, it's not like you should carve out two days a week and say, you know, it's Tuesday and Wednesday. It's my social days where I'm going to go build my network. You know, I have one of my, uh, a client of mine recently said, it's right under your nose, right? Every interaction you have with somebody, uh, whether it's a business interaction or otherwise, is an opportunity to build that social connection. Um, And so I just, I think you just have to have the mindset of, um, um, it's part of and integrated into everything you do um, on a daily basis. When it comes to inclusion, are there any traps that executives can fall into and ways to get around those traps? I mean, one one story I'll share is, uh, again, I was speaking with an executive who who shared that, you know, they took on a new role. The individual said that they've been invited out to play golf almost every week. And they're like, but I don't play golf. Like, I just, I don't want to, it's not something that I'm interested in. Uh, So that's an example, I think, where it's like, it's, I think, not deliberately so, but it is excluding a group of people who are, they're just not interested in that. Right. So the solution is just don't be over reliant on that. Like if, if, if the only, if the way that you build a strong network at your organization is at four o'clock every day or five o'clock, everybody goes out to drink at the local uh, at the local bar for drinks, you are by definition excluding people who either don't want to go there, don't drink, have to get home for for kids, um, any number of reasons, right? As you know, right, McKinsey defaults to a lot of like wind downs um, where people just get together and have drinks at the end of the day. And I had a number of folks in the office uh, for various religious reasons who just didn't drink. So we actually went and bought a bunch of like specialty sodas um, and juice and stuff so that when we had a wind down, they actually had something different other than like the normal soft drinks and bubbly out of the, out of the fridge. I, I do think that, yeah, like you've got to challenge your own biases. Like if going to golf is great for you, fine, keep going to golf, but recognize that you should probably do a few other things as well, uh, to, to broaden the inclusive aspect of, of building the social capital. Brooke. John, this has been terrific. Um, Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Roberta. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Roberta. Thank you, Brick. Angela and Sebastian Sinistera Woods were building up a kind of social capital before they joined McKinsey. They were dating. Now they're married. And they join us to talk about their work highlights. Angela and I met at a Halloween party. Neither of us really had any, any sort of memorable costume. I was dressed as a nerd, not that hard, not that different from my usual attire. 
I attended a McKinsey information session while I was at Duke. At that point, I had zero clue what consulting was, certainly no idea who McKinsey is. What really drew me was the opportunity to work across sectors, the public, social, and private sector, the opportunity to learn from a wide variety of industries and functions. The apprenticeship model is one of the hallmarks of the McKinsey experience, and it certainly delivers because you're never on any one project for too long. Every year you get multiple reps at working with different colleagues, different peers, uh, different senior partners and partners at McKinsey, and each of them have had their, you know, their hundreds of projects before them working with different companies, different CEOs. So just by virtue of working with them, you also get to absorb a lot of those learnings. All of my work is with a practice that we call SHAPE, which is our social healthcare and public entities practice. I find that my work with those organizations is so mission-driven and it gets me excited every day for work. We were serving a hotel operator that was trying to expand in North America. They were starting from scratch and I was able to get very close to the head of North America. I was there with him every single day in the room and the relationship evolved very quickly. I mean, this was within the matter of a few days from being, you know, you're McKinsey, help me with these things to, hey, you're Sebastian, we're on the same side of the table. I want you in all my meetings. I want you to knock on my door as much as you want. This client has since left, so he's no longer working at the hotel operator, but we catch up every few months just to see how each other is doing. So it truly became a friendship. It wasn't just a, a professional, you know, arm's length counseling relationship. So one experience that I found absolutely fascinating was my work with Generation. Generation is McKinsey's nonprofit that focuses on training and placing people into life-changing careers that might otherwise be inaccessible to them. McKinsey teaches you to be very organized. We're not necessarily organized in our personal lives, to say the least. You know, we're good at making lists. We have a whiteboard in the kitchen, if that tells you anything. The whiteboard has a list of things that we need to do for the house, for our personal house, with little check boxes, and it has an owner assigned. Is that Sebastian's responsibility or Angela's responsibility? I think it just turns into a, a tracking mechanism for all the stuff that we haven't done. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. 